Episode 3354 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I have a great guest for you guys today, Jim Shockey, who I have followed for probably about 20 years. Uh, very well known for his uh, series on places like the Outdoor Channel, the Sportsman's Channel. Just an amazing guy with a great story, tons of stories, I would imagine. And we'll have him on in just a moment. We'll also be talking about his new book called Call Me Hunter. And I will let you guys know that uh, if you are on Rumble and you're commenting, I do have another screen over here where I can monitor your comments. As always, if you have a question or comment for discussion, uh, please go ahead and type the word QUESTION in all caps. That will help me with my secretarial duties over here. Before we bring Jim on real quick, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Uh, Above Phone is one of the newest sponsors we have here at TSP. Uh, I had their uh, founder and owner on a couple weeks ago. I was so impressed with him. He asked if he could be a sponsor, and I said, you know, just so happens that we're making room for a new sponsor. So we brought them on. Replace big tech with your own private ecosystem with Above Phone. You don't have to have everything you do on your phone at all times tracked. You can have absolute freedom from tracking, from censorship, what have you. It is just a great option. Learn more at AbovePhone.com. Next up, kind of sticking in this same mindset, how about Start9 Embassy Servers? These guys have been with us about four and a half, five years now. Start9 is an amazing company. They let you take back your digital sovereignty. Remember, MSB members, you guys get 9% off all of the, all the products at Start9. You get 75 bucks off and above phone as well if you are a member. So check out and give our sponsors some love. And with that, I want to bring our special guest on Jim Shockey. Jim, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pretty cool sponsors you have. Yeah, yeah. We, we've, we've been lucky as a podcast. We have some sponsors. We've, we've been doing this 15 years now. We have some that literally came on board as, from the day we started taking sponsors that are still here. It's, it's not a typical thing in the world of podcasting, but uh, yeah. uh, they are great guys, and they support 15 us. Years. 15 years. 15 years. I thought podcasting was invented like two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Adam Curry is kind of the podfather, and uh, we have one of the longest-running shows out there, though. Uh, 3,300. You're 3,354. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad to have you on, man. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Let, let's, for people that maybe do not know who you are, let's kind of just introduce you. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the world of uh, outdoors and sports and making all these amazing videos and traveling the world like were you were you a hunter from the time you were a little kid? Kind of like I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Deer meat was part of the, the yearly allowance of meat. Like we like my little sister didn't hunt, but we would get her a a, a tag so that dad could put a tag on the deer. Like so, I grew up that way. Is that kind of how you grew up, or did you discover this this like yearning for the outdoors later in life? No, no. I, I mean, I was born a hunter. I, my earliest memories two, three years old, we're collecting insects and bugs and turning over rocks. I mean, you know, then mice and gophers. But uh, I, I grew up in a trailer park out just outside of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. And uh, if my dad didn't get a moose every fall, you're, you're talking deer. Yeah. Deer, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we hunted deer as well. But uh, if he didn't get a moose, we didn't eat meat. I, I mean, I didn't realize you could buy a cow until I was high school. It, it was, uh, it, it, we ate macaroni if he didn't get a moose. So it was a, 
pretty big deal for us uh, growing up. I mean, it was we, we truly lived a field-to-table lifestyle, big, giant garden, froze all our vegetables, canned everything, and ate wild game. Same, bro. Um, one of my favorite quotes by you is, the hunter eats like a king. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know, and I guess, there, you know, it goes all the way back to like, you know, England and the king's deer type thing where it was reserved for royalty. Uh, and in North America, we're very blessed that we have so much opportunity to go out and take game. Yeah, the, the, you know, that, that came from an Inuit friend of mine. We were up in the Arctic. I think it was about the 10th day of a 14 day trip. We were out of food. We, we went from Kugluktuk up in the very north, it used to be copper mine almost down to Yellowknife and then back on snow machines in, in, in May. And uh, we, we were sitting in, in, a, in our little canvas wall tent, literally freezing. Uh, it was like 40 below, true ambient temperatures, 40 below. And we had pilot biscuits. That's all we had left. And he looked at me and said, you know, we're, we're eating like kings. Mm-hmm. It, it truly, truly, when you're in the wilderness and, and living that field-to-table lifestyle, you you're you are you're eating like things you and that was never truer words have been spoken so it's uh yeah that that's that's where that originally came from and i've i've lived by that ever since thought about it every single time i eat wild game or fresh vegetables from our garden agreed man and the kings of old too the kings that went out and did stuff not not, not the uh the royalty of the day that sits in the background and and you know like back in the day the king led his own army into war uh, yeah. and, and, and I think that's the kind of king you're eating like, that, that king of old. Yeah, of course, the, the uh, Renaissance kings of, of the day. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not throwing stones at the, the modern. I got uh, you. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I don't want to throw stones. I mean, I, I probably have. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, they, they, they were, it, was, it was a different, different time back then. You know, nowadays they're, they're more socially, politically correct, I guess. So I ended up getting you on because I got connected with um, someone from Simon and Schuster about another author. And I started talking to this guy and really good dude. And he's like, here's some of the people I have. I'm like, Jim, let's get him on now. Like we've worked you in. I usually do one interview a week. We've worked you in to get you in in the first available spot uh, because I was really excited about it. But I had no idea that you were about to release a novel that people that are on the video anyway can see behind you there on the on the board call me Hunter. And I was like, you know, I've, I've read your other book. That was more like an adventure book. I grew up reading people like Peter Capstick and Robert Rourke. And I mean, like I, you know, in my head when I was a teenager climbing over a hill on a shell bank to shoot a crow, I was Robert Rourke dropping the crosshairs on a, on a, a cape buffalo. So I really like stuff like that, but I was kind of surprised you decided to release a novel and as I read up a little about it, it's not really like a, a novel like spins like African hunting or something. It almost it almost reigns almost like a spy novel, though. That's not what it is. You want to tell people about it and why you decided to write a novel versus something more like a, uh, you know, adventure uh, biography or something. Yeah. You know, when I was 10 years old, as I said, we lived in a trailer park where I grew up in a trailer park and and I decided then two things that I was going to have a museum someday, a, a natural history museum, which I started then. Okay. My, first, my first seashell was still in our museum. I'm, I'm in our edit suite in the museum, but, uh, and it, it's 17,000 square feet. It's a big place. Dinosaur skeletons, woolly mammoth skeletons. So I, I started on that journey then, but I also knew that I would be a novelist one day. I, I read J.A. Hunter, 
his book, Hunter. I was grade five. I was 10 years old. I, I went to so many detentions because I wouldn't read, see James Robinson, see Dick, do whatever Dick does. You know, so, so I, the teacher would send me to detention, which was great. I got to read my Jay Hunter book again. You know, I read it three times when I was 10 years old. So I, I started my first novel when I was 10. I, I wrote the first, I think about eight pages I got into and realized I didn't have a story until I was 10 years old. I couldn't even hardly write. I couldn't read before that. So, so I tabled that, you know, put it aside and, and continued on the museum quest and living life. I, I, I penned the first lines of Call Me Hunter, Javago was dead, I killed him, um, back in about 91, 92, 93, somewhere in there. And I, and I realized again that I, I still hadn't lived life enough to be able to tell a story, my story. And, and so I spent another 25 years uh, uh, on the road before I stopped international travel, Mozambique, October 2018, was my last international trip. And I decided that in 2016 because I knew I had to get this novel out of my head. I mean, sitting on a mountain in a customs office somewhere in the, you know, uh, Asia or, or just on airplanes, I, this thing was, was, I was writing it in my head. So I, I, but I knew if I didn't stop international travel, and that, you know, it was 306 days a year on average for 20 years on the road. If I didn't stop that, I'd never write it. So I, I sat down and November of 2019 and, and started writing. And then COVID hit shortly afterwards and couldn't do anything up here in Canada. They basically. Yeah. I was going to say the timing, you know, as bad as some of the lockdown stuff was, like the timing for someone that wants to stay in and write a book couldn't really have been better. No, I think there's a lot of books written in that period, Possibly. which means there's a lot of competition right now for my book coming out. Yeah. But, um, but it, it's, it's a, you know, I could have, I could have, well, I shouldn't say I could have, I have. I've got four other books that are ready for design and, and release. Um, two humor books, one one sort of uh, about guiding and, and one that's about Louisa's and my life, my wife, my soulmate of 39 years. And those are ready, but that's not what I wanted to release. I want Call Me Hunter. I want a novel. I want my story out there. So what it is is, uh, it, I didn't have to make very much up. You know, it's it's a it's a fictional thriller, but I, I'd call it a autobiographical, uh, abstract fictional thriller. So if you if you took uh, Da Vinci Code and mixed it up with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and threw in a little Hunger Games, that that kind of what you're getting on on Call Me Hunter. And, and you know, your question, why wouldn't I write a you know, straight autobiography. I've got my journals. I've kept journals religiously my entire traveling lifetime. And, and uh, just my journal, journals on Africa alone were a million words. So so we're editing that down. I've got it down to 180,000 now, but I've got to get it down to something reasonable, 100,000, 100, 130,000. And then, you know, those will eventually get released, Asia and South America, North America. Those will, those will all come out, but that, you know that that to me isn't isn't satisfying or challenging enough to you know writing about about the outdoors and living that field the table lifestyle adventures that that's pretty easy i mean i've written a thousand articles for magazines over the years that's how i started my career about 39 years ago i wrote my first article 
for a magazine called Bullbender Magazine. Kathleen Windsor was the editor, paid me $42 for it. And that started on my, my writing outdoor career, uh, which probably gets into some of the other questions you had. But uh, but the, chal- the challenge of writing a novel is, is uh, to me, that that's a worthy challenge. And, and so I sat down and wrote, wrote uh, Call Me Hunter. And, and like I say, it's a fictional autobiography. Uh, uh, what I The way to describe it is 80% of it is true. Okay. The 20% that would put anybody in jail, that's the fictional part. Yeah. So it, yeah. It's, just, it's for everybody to decide what's, when they read it. I think that's what fascinated the Simon & Schuster people is uh, there hasn't been anything quite like that. I, I, I lived life first and then wrote a novel, not was yeah, a writer yeah. first and, and made stuff up. It was, I didn't have to make a lot up, like I say. I think what's interesting to me is that you had this stuck in your head when you were a legitimate kid, right? Um, and it took 30, 40 years of life experience for it to be fully realized in, into a novel. And that, that means it was something that was clearly important to you. And I like blending in the reality and then adding the fiction because you, you got to make a novel out of it. Um, and then at the same time, like, I'm not going to tell you, you figure it out for yourself. I kind of dig that. Yeah. I say that in the preface that, that, uh, just about everything that's in there is provable. Like, like it's, yeah. it's there. You, you, know, you know, I talk about Goldie Hawn and, uh, Michael Crichton and, and, uh, what the lady from, uh, gosh, my brain's gone dead now, uh, from WK, Lonnie Anderson. You know, okay. people, people like that, I, I mentioned them, or, or Gene Simmons from Kiss, the character in the book who goes out and was drinking with Gene Simmons from Kiss. Well, ask him. Ask him. <laughs> you know, ask Goldie Hawn. Ask Lonnie yeah. Hawn. You know, Michael Crichton, you can't. And and uh, what I say is I would love for somebody, oh, I mean, everybody, to go ahead and Google it. Figure, you know, track down, is this true? Is this true? And and it'll it'll be like quicksand. The more you struggle against being caught in the novel's hold, the deeper you're going to sink in that quicksand. And, and uh, hey, yeah, in the end, it, people will have to decide. You know, oh, themselves. Very cool. But Very cool. On this. I think that was a, put it in a slightly different genre than, um, than they're used to with the, the normal thriller, you know, fictional thriller type novels. So one of the things I also didn't know about you is how big you were into like ethnocentric art. And that you literally have a museum at your house. That's 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 not something a lot of people could say. But the art angle fits into this novel as well, right? And I, I know authors never want to give away too much about their book, but um, you know there, there's stuff out there that's already explaining that. So can you kind of talk about that? How the the nature of this the, like art and art collecting actually fits in with this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I. Well, first of all, the museum is an actual museum. It's a 17,000 square foot. It's a, our children went to, it's a school. So okay. I'm, in a, I'm in a classroom right now. You can see by the lights. Yeah. This, this was a classroom in a school. It was built in 1961 and decommissioned in the year 2000. Our kids went to this school, actually. So we, I bought the school. Okay. Rancher style, 17,000 square foot school. And it is literally filled with with ethnocentric folk art forms uh, and also natural history objects. So like I say, there's woolly mammoth skeletons. There's a huge collection of woolly mammoth uh, tusks, you know, match sets of 200 
Oh, wow. 30-pound tusks and woolly rhinos and, and uh, skeletons of narwhals and, and giraffes. and I mean, all kinds of crazy natural history, history things. But there's also a bigger part of the museum is is the ethnocentric arts. Uh, it, it, the, it's the Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts, and Conservation. So conservation is an educational part, component of the museum, but the cultural arts make up a, a large part of it. Maybe not the most dramatic part. I mean, when you walk in and there's a full 47-foot-long Gigantosaurus, which is bigger than T-Rex, a, a theropod you know, skeleton, you know, that's pretty dramatic. It's hard yeah. to hard to match that with masks from all over the world, you know, tribal outfits from all over the world. Uh, but, but that, that to me, it's one of the truest forms of art, the ethnocentric art and whether it's, you know, I mean, idiosyncratic, they can put their own uh, influence and, and uh, components into the art, but they're following an ethnic um, origin, an ethnic form line that, that to make it part of their culture. And when they're handmade like that, and they're made for ceremonial purposes, spiritual purposes, maybe just out of love, or maybe it's just to create art. You know, the spirit of the person that created it lives inside that piece. And you can, and this is what the novel's about, is, you know, there's people that have a higher sensitivity to that, that know when, when I mean, the piece, when they say it speaks to you, it truly does. So when I travel the world, I... I watched, and, and I, you know, these pieces, I know it sounds a little voodoo voodoo, but it's, you know, it's it's true. You feel it. I, I get people walking through the museum that are really switched on in that regard, and, and they feel the people that made the pieces, and they're gone now. So all that's left their entire life is that. That's their legacy, often. And they'll, they'll be in tears walking through this museum, just overwhelmed. The number one word people use to uh, describe this museum. And we had 26,000 visitors last year uh, to the museum, donation only as well. Oh, wow. So, so, so it's, you know, that that's what started me on that whole journey way back when was at a very young age. And the novels, like I say, you read the novel. Yeah, you a know, young boy that's tuned in to this type of thing. That's that's what I read on the kind of the summary on, on Amazon, where I right. should mention people can pre-order it right now as an audio, as a Kindle, as a hard copy. It's available. There'll be links in the notes for the audio notes for the show. If you're watching the video, there's a link down there. And if you click it this moment while we're live, it won't be there. We're not done yet. But once the live ends, about 30 minutes later, all of the stuff that Jim's talking about, all his social media links, his main website at all, all linked there. So make sure you guys check that out. Um, I wanted to talk to you some more about, like, like your background is just fascinating. Like, I knew a lot of stuff about you because you put so much of your life out in the public space. Um, with your, your your TV shows and stuff like that, but I didn't know that you actually were at one time a water polo player, and that you I mean you were like an Olympic level guy. You played on like the world championship team or something like that, and then like many uh, athletes, unfortunately, in the 1980 Olympics, there was a boycott due to issues with the Soviet Union, and you didn't actually get to compete at that level, but. Or in the Olympics, you, you competed at at that level prior to. Like, how did you? How do you end up in Western Canada in your in playing water polo? Like, how does that work out? Uh, well, well, I mean, it, 
two things. I, I was always a swimmer, so I'm a, okay. I'm an I'm an all American swimmer. So okay. so I was I was in the NAIA conference, uh, competing against American universities, going to a university up in Canada called Simon Fraser University to give scholarships. So I I didn't want to leave Canada, but they would give me a scholarship to go to school. So I went there and and I became an all American swimmer. But after two years of college. I decided, and I'd been swimming since I was 10 years old. I decided, eh, you know, I've had enough of up and down a pool. Yeah. And I loved water polo. We played it as a kid in Saskatoon. It was more jungle ball than water polo, but, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm a big, fairly big guy, six foot three, and, and I could swim like a fish. And I'm, you know, I gotta say, I have a little mean streak in me. So I, you know, I, water polo, I, you know, I, now I realized pretty quick that I was one of the smallest players in the world. At that, okay. that place. so I had to be even meaner and, and faster than uh, than these other monsters that played the game. So, so I went to um, I, I walked on the Canadian national water polo team and, and I played against the Americans in national team many, many, many times. It's 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 in the novel. Um, when I went to two world championships, 1978 in Berlin, and uh, World Aquatic Championships in 1982 in Guayaquil, Ecuador, but 1980. You know, Jimmy Carter decided to boycott because the Olympics were in Moscow and they just invaded Afghanistan. Um, so, so we couldn't go. In 1984, the team asked me back. Um, you know, to but they not asked me back. They they said we had to centralize again. And I was at, at a point I was 26 years old at that point, and I was I wasn't going to go centralize and train for six months before the Olympics in Ottawa. Yeah. I had a life. I was getting married. You know, I, I, I had a I had future plans. I had a novel I had to write and a life I had to life I love. So, so I, um, that, that's, yeah, that, that's how I uh, got on the water polo team was you know, fast and had good hands and good game sense and, and a little bit mean. <laughs> yeah. What, like I say, one of the smallest players in the world. We, we used to play a version of it in the army. And uh, it was like no rules, basically, like guys like me that are short and stocky. I would grab the guy with the ball and sink him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they let go of the ball. Like, I, I know that's not a sanctioned maneuver, but uh, it does toughen you up. Like you get in the water with other people and, and it's it's kind of a combative sport. Uh, it, you know, I, I love it. I, the, uh, it, it. There's a lot of behavior that's that's very animalistic in, in water polo. I mean, you know, you punch a guy, well, that's fine. You punch him, but how hard is he going to punch you back? So, you know, are you, are you prepared? And and that was one of the things I was always, I was always all in on that. You, you want to hit me, you know, I'll, I, be prepared because I, I'm coming at you with every single thing I got, every ounce of power to, to, if you, and if you cut a guy, then they had to be pulled out of the water, right? They, they yeah. couldn't play if you're cut because it, the water turns red everywhere. In 1956 Olympics in Australia, uh, Russia was playing Hungary and they just, Russia just invaded Hungary. And, and so it was a bloodbath. They were, they were, it was just a bloodbath. And the, Sharks in the pool, man. Yeah, yeah. So that since that day, they, anybody gets cut in the water. So I, you know, the only way I survived was to make sure that I would just, cut the guy, you know, whatever, with elbows, whatever, it didn't matter. It was, and it didn't matter. The, the only time I made an exception to that was um, playing a, a club team in, in Germany. And this guy, I, I never have seen anybody this thick and this wide and just 
his head was, uh, oops, hang on a second, you got, his head was this wide, so his water polo cap, you know, one ear would be covered, the other one was on top of his head, and he, and Harry, and he, uh, I was checking him, and, you know, he, or no, he was checking me, and, and, you know, he did something to me dirty, and I said, okay, that's, and I went, bam, and whoever it was, I didn't care, and, and this guy goes, doink, and I hit him with everything I had, yeah. and he, uh, he looks at me, and I turn around, I see this big head with his water polo hat not fitting, and he said, oh, my turn. <laughs> I, the whole play was going this way. I was going this this way yeah. with this big monster. Uh, yeah. <laughs> our, our team, uh, our their team probably scored a goal, and uh, and I substitution. And I told the I told the coach I don't feel so good. I don't think I should go back in the water. And uh, I mean that was the only time I chickened out from a from a fight in those days. But uh, he, he was, the original so, f around and find out game. Right, like if you f around at a nine, you find out at a nine. That's <laughs> it's it's a, it's a uh, yeah, I love it. It's a fabulous fabulous sport, and and you know like two big predators meeting at a waterhole. If you you know you, you kind of look around at each other and why fight because someone's going to get killed, someone's going to get hurt real badly. Let's just you know back off and let's play the game. Yeah, but but when you get two of you that think you're both apex predators and you're going to win automatically. It was, it was such a great game, but it, but it's, it's in the novel. All that's in the novel. That's cool. That's very cool. You also spent some time and you served in the Canadian military. Um, that I also didn't know about you until I got this show booked and did some background research. What, what, what was that like? And, and what made you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Or were you part of a draft at some point? I know Canada doesn't have that anymore, but maybe yeah, no, that yeah, that, that was, I, I, you know, I want to make it very clear. I did not come up to the ranks of the armed forces. I, I was honorary lieutenant colonel of uh, four Canadian Ranger Patrol Group. Okay. So up there in Canada, we're on the British system, our armed forces. So the troops can pick a commanding officer that worked with the commanding officer. So I, I was tapped on the shoulder and say the, the Rangers have picked you. They want you to be their, I, I wouldn't say a titular head, but it is, you know, because it harkens back to the days when the troops wanted to get paid and the government couldn't necessarily pay. So they could pick a Duke and the government yeah. would make him a general or a, a lieutenant colonel. And so the troops would get paid and the general didn't have to go through the ranks and he was walk around in full uniform on the field of battle. He and I would have had to defer to the actual commanding officer gotcha. who held an equal rank. So, yeah. so it's an honorary lieutenant colonel rank, uh, but full uniform. I mean, uh, and Rangers are irregular forces up here in Canada. So I, you know, I, I asked, do you want me to get my regulation haircut? And they, they said, no, we want you just we, like that. I, I think that's a favorite of all the generals, uh, whenever you have to gather for whatever reason. Um, but I served, you, you get a three year term. It takes an act of, or an order in council of our federal parliament. Um, the minister of defense to sign off. And in fact, the queen of England back then has to sign off to be able to do that because essentially you're, you're moved into the armed forces at a level, you know, mm -hmm. a, you know, commanding officer level. So, so yeah, I, I spent six years, but I, but do not for a second, anybody out there that actually served, thank you for your service. And I, you know, I'm not in any way saying that that's what I did. I, you know, okay. I, you know, I did go over to, uh, Afghanistan with your American armed forces at one point prior to that. Um, and, uh, but that, that was for a different deal. Okay. 
That's actually very cool, though, to be selected by the troops themselves. Um, that's never really been a historical thing in the U.S. military directly, but indirectly it has in that the early militias elected their officers. And uh, it says something about a guy when the troops want that guy in that position. Um, let's talk a little bit about your life of adventure is kind of what I titled this. Like when like, like you and I both grew up hunting, period, like that was just part of our lives. How did you move from that into a world where basically you're living the dream? You're like traveling the world, documenting your hunting and making a living doing it, because that's something very few people have been able to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was probably unemployable, so, so I didn't have any choice. I, I had to do it. I had to, I had to survive in that world. Um, I, re I remember my dad uh, when I you know, sold my first article for $42 to Bowbender Magazine. That was, that was 40 years ago now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was 25 years old. Um, and, you know, he said, don't, you know, I said, I really want to get into I think I can do it. He said, he said, almost nobody makes it in that world. You know, like you mentioned Capstick. He mentioned uh, Jack O'Connor. Yeah. You know, he, he said, you know, there's everybody wants that, but almost nobody ever gets or why would you pick something that you're doomed to fail at and, and that you know he said go go get a real job and I, I think that you know probably just being a bit of a rebel I, uh, I said no way I'm I'm I, there's no way I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a go of this so I and because you know I, I didn't have any other skills except doing what I you know when, what I love and who I am and and you get one life so why would I why would I um, get golden handcuffed to a, a job at the mill or the mine? It didn't make sense to me. It's my life. I, I want to live it. And, and so I, I mean, I, and it didn't take a lot of money at the start. I, $42 was, was a lot of money, you know, and I could hitchhike to, I mean, I've hitchhiked with full guns and backpack with a mountain goat on my back up to Northern BC. And, and I had my, you know, I, with my profits from my article, I bought a little camera. So now I could do articles with pictures and, if I guess, I mean, I'm not, if I have any talent, it's probably writing, you know, making stuff up or telling stories. And I, and I remember at that time that the articles were headed towards more how to, I grew up with Ruark and Capstick, you know, death yeah. and long grass. You know, th these are things that I grew up with JJ Hunter. I mean, it, th this was adventure and super cool. And by the time 40 years ago, they, the magazines were starting to head towards, you know, how to, Hunt a whitetail deer in his bedroom. Your best caliber for whitetail bucks. Sure. Secrets to getting your big bull, whatever. Um, but they were they. I, I mean, I look at the pictures and read the captions. I wouldn't read the articles. I, I wanted adventure. I wanted storytelling, like I grew up with. And and they, um, they told me that there'd be no demand for that. Uh, and I, I think you're wrong. I think hunters. Hunter's a hunter. Even though he loves whitetail hunting and turkey hunting, if if you're hunting a, a black and rufous elephant shrew on Zanzibar Island and you know off the east coast of Africa, if you tell a, a story around that, an adventure story, yeah, I think people are going to be fascinated if they're you know if they're outdoorsmen. And and um, so that that's what I did. I went all in on that. I lived in British Columbia by then, so I mean. It's you were looking of, Jimmy Buffett of, of of your world, where you know he was turned down by like twenty eight national <laughs> producers, 
and became one of the greatest stars ever and keeps doing it his own way. And what you're saying to me, it makes no sense the way that the conventional space would push back against that because that's actually what I care about when I watch something or read something about somebody going hunting. I've seen, uh, uh, and I don't mean to put anything down, but I've seen like a hundred turkey hunting shows and it's basically <clears throat> like that's, I mean, really that that's, you, you call the turkey and you shot the turkey. Great. I'm actually more interested about like, how did you, how did you figure out where you were going to target this animal? What went on? What were the challenges that you faced in going on this hunt or, or whatever a- adventure it is. That's actually way more interesting to me. And you mentioned people like Jack O'Connor or, or Capstick or Rourke. Like, that's what they wrote about. That's what the, the, the animal was a piece of the story, right? And uh, I remember in uh, Using Up Gun, Rourke talks about if you, if you kill the animal to make it immortal, then you've truly done something. You'll always remember the day of the lion or the day of the buffalo. But if you kill something just to kill it, then basically you've committed murder. There has to be a purpose. There has to be a reason behind it. And that story is a huge part of the reason behind it. Of course. We, we, you know, we've been vilified and marginalized in the mainstream media really since, since Bambi. And, and to be fair, I mean, Ruark, you know, I think there's, there's some stuff that maybe was written at a time where it doesn't quite translate into modern sensibilities. I could put it that way. Yeah, and, and I would say may have even been a catalyst for some of the problems we're having with our mainstream point of view of, of, or, you know, a stereotype of what hunters are. Those guys were, I mean, I don't want to say misogynist, but they, you know, they certainly, they, they, you know, the higher... They were men of their time? Yeah, they were men of their time. We can't judge them. But, yeah. but I think they also... You know, that pendulum, as it swings, you know, they took it right to the peak. And then people, you know, yeah. dang, you know, we're, so now we're dealing with the fallout from that wonderful for them. Not so great for us. But, yeah. but uh, the, the problem that we've had is that the mainstream media, the people that don't hunt, and, and, you know, there's 10% hate us, 10% are us, 80% in the middle. And, and the 10% that hate us, they focused in on that kill. Yeah. So they, think all we want to do, we're bloodthirsty louts that have no higher sensibilities. We're just going to spit on the floor and kill something, and that's what we enjoy. Well, we, you, what you're saying is exactly what I believe, too, and every true outdoorsman believes that that's a tiny, tiny little part of it. You know, they're, uh, uh, go bang. Yeah. That's a tiny part of what the actual process of, of being a hunter and hunting actually is. It's the camaraderie, the friendship, the family, tradition, the learning, the skills, being in the outdoors, the fresh air, the exercise. I mean, you just go on and on and on. The problem when you're, you know, television, you have about 14 minutes on a 30-minute show mm-hmm. to tell that story. And, and I mean, you, you know, in today's age, you know, we, we come on, let's fast forward onto the, you know, we want to see this part. And as hunters, that's what we did. Well, you know, non-hunters looking at it say, well, that's all they're interested in. So, so it was a, it was a bit of a perception. And what I try to do on our television shows, uh, the professionals, um, uncharted, uncharted Yukon was to show everything else and, and how important everything else is to being who we are as hunters, um, and, and what hunting is all about. So, so we, we did that through storytelling and, and we, we reached an audience that was outside of the straight vertical hunting market. You know, women that didn't hunt, didn't, you know, 
men mm-hmm. that did not, uh, again, people that are in that 80%, they would watch our show and they go, oh, that's pretty cool. I love the whole yeah. culture part. I love this Conserva- conservation component. I didn't know that. You know, that's really cool. And, and it's, it's all in the presentation. The problem is we, we didn't have uh, access to mainstream media. That that got out of our hands and, and our control. And we, you know, they could say, no, we're not putting you, we're not giving you a big audience. The distribution of the signal was a, was a hard part. So we, you know, end up on the networks that are fairly vertical and they're, and they're hunting outdoors, fishing oriented um, programming. So, you know, we tried to get outside of that, but it was, it, it's, it's a difficult, we, we lost, we lost a lot of decades and, and now we're trying to fight back. To get it back. And I think like one of the things you made me think of with that discussion there is that there's this meme that like the worst thing you can be is a trophy hunter. And they act like that means a guy shoots a giant elk, cuts the rack off and leaves the animal. Like that never happens. That just, that's not what happens. And you know, I can go all the way back to when I was 13 years old, my second year deer hunting with a bow. And I let like 20 does walk that season. And it was the second to the last day of the season. I hunted every day after school, standing in this little bitty climbing tree stand. And I took a little closed rack seven point buck. But to me at that age, that was a trophy. And I'm like, so if the trophy hunting is bad, but I let over two dozen does walk, if I just wanted to kill an animal, then the second day of that season, I would have taken an animal. Like it requires discipline. It requires putting things off. And it, it's not like just because that animal has nice horns or a nice rack or what have you, that it goes to waste. It's actually being willing to work harder for something because it's unique. And because you do want to do, you know, Rourke's words to make that day something that lives forever in your mind. Yeah. The term trophy, you know, and, and when it's added with hunting uh, has been hijacked. You know, yes, you're 100% correct. We all know that. You're basically trophy by definition is a memory is a memory of a, an event or an accomplishment, and and so that's what that little rack meant to you was you know it's a trophy because it's and which I'm 51 and I still have it. Sure, right. I, I still I still have my first one from when I was 14. There you go. And, and that that's yeah, it's a trophy. But the term has been hijacked and it, it's been. You know, they've added all these derogatory meaning to it. I don't know that trophy at this point in, in time is a hill we want to die on. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. it's selective, selective hunter, right? It means the same thing. It's just the, the connotation of trophy hunter, as I said, has been hijacked. And, and I don't think we're ever going to get that back. So my, you know, I, I try to stay, steer away from that and I, you know, I, I, I mean, you can explain it just like you did. Yeah. You and I both get it. We, everybody listening probably gets it. Uh, but but that because there's been decades of this trophy bad, trophy bad, trophy bad, trophy bad yeah. in mainstream media, I, I, I just don't think that's a battle. Where, I don't, it's not a hill that I would choose to die on. Let's, let's call it selective money, call it something else, and, and, and go with the flow. There, there is a real movement to ruin ruin language i think in a lot of situations where people don't like a thing so they will damage the language itself and i think sometimes pivoting to just something else we just won't call it that actually does make a lot of sense yeah, I, I i say if, you know if you there's a hurricane coming you can be an oak tree or you can be a willow willow yeah which one the one's going to be standing after one's going to get tipped over yeah 
just okay. So yeah, we got to take the you know beating, but and even if the willow gets stripped, it grows back in the next season. Yeah, I, I like that analogy a lot. Um, can we talk about some of the different methods of hunting that you've done over the years? You know, like many you've, you've hunted with a rifle and a bow, but you've done some things that are a little bit different. Uh, one of the things that that I really have started to get into a lot lately is some of the new air guns are, are pretty amazing. Um, I'm also a huge fan when it comes to rifles of 357 carbines. They're just to me one like like a little sweet spot. And I've actually used your video where you you killed a pig in debates about that, where they're like it's undergun. I'm like, okay, this is the same slug at half the speed. It comes out of a carbine. This pig dropped like a hammer. Your argument is invalid. Um, there, and the people always say placement. Oh, that's always the case. But what attracted you to like adding big more air gun hunting to, to, to what you do? Uh, degree of difficulty, challenge. It, it, you said it when you turned down 20 deer, second last day of the season, you got your buck. Yeah. I, I spent 36 days last fall sitting on deer stand every single day, 36 days. And, you know, morning from dark to about noon, then I'd take two hours to go. Yep trail cameras and then back on stand and i finally got the, the single deer i was after turned down lots of big ones so it's it, it you want the challenge and and for me rifle i mean i started as a with an air gun that was my first a slavia air gun i mean 177 caliber shooting pellets you know yeah and, and i mean i hunted everything up to jackrabbits with that thing uh yeah slingshots i used all that bow and arrow back then as I, you know, grew and, and got some age under me, my father allowed me to use a 22 mm -hmm. rim And then I eventually uh, graduated to a shotgun and a rifle. And I used rifle because I think, you know, in the beginning, it, it was um, really important to me the what I got. You know, the, the, the you know, you know, what I hunted, you know, so I'd use a rifle because I could be sure of getting an animal. But but over time, I actually, it became the how, how I hunted. You know, mm -hmm. So I, I put down my rifle and never used it other than guiding for self-protection when I had clients. Um, but I switched to muzzleloader because I loved the challenge. It was everything like bow hunting. I could sneak up on the animal 40 yards, but, but if it wasn't a perfect angle for a bow hunt, it was where I was there. I could still take the shot with a muzzle order. So muzzle order was the perfect choice. The, the how became more important than the what I got. And then as I, again, just age, wisdom, I'm not sure, um, experience, it became the why, you know, why I was hunting and, and, and to be out there, not to kill something. So, so I went back to bow and arrow and went back to my roots and, and, uh, and it just made the challenge the degree of difficulty is so much greater, the air gun. I mean, it, it's fabulous. I actually worked out a um, something called an air bow. Uh, Benjamin, I believe, made it for years. I, maybe they still are, I don't know. But, but you know, be, the lack of energy, bow and arrow has a lack of energy too, but, mm -hmm. but it kills them within three steps if you hit the animal right. So I figured, well, why not do the same thing with the uh, air gun? And, and it, we came, I drew it on a napkin actually and said, if we did this and this and this, and the Benjamin people made that up and, uh, an amazing piece of equipment. It's probably not legal in a lot of states because the bull hunters don't want it. Yeah. Cross bull hunters don't want it. Yeah. Because it makes it, you know, eight shots and, and <clears throat> deadly after 100 yards. So, 
So it, it but um, I, you know, I just wanted more challenge. I wanted more time in the field. The, the perfect hunt for me. Well, here, here's the difference. <clears throat> Excuse me. I grew up with my father and his brothers. For them, the deer was a hamburger running across the field. That's sure, all sure. it was. It was that was the total value of that animal was was the meat that you got from it. So if they could be done opening morning, you know, by 10 a.m. and have it all butchered up and be back at work by noon, that was a great hunt. Sure. <clears throat> but it never, to me, the animals always meant a lot more than just meat. And I don't think that's defensible in the long run to say we hunt for meat. I mean, yes, you eat it, but I don't think that can be the reason you hunt. It has to be a spiritual reason to survive, you know, the, the attacks uh, because there's too many holes in that one. We hunt for meat. Really, in today's world, it's the most expensive meat you'll ever buy. I mean, really, yeah. And that, that, and that's fair enough. You know, we eat eating like kings. Yeah. The most expensive meat that you can get is is our wild game because we're yeah. prepared to pay that to know what we're putting in our pie hole. Yeah. But, um, yeah. That, that for me, the the hunting was was far more important to make it last. So that's back to your question, is why I went to. You know, increase the degree of difficulty so that it increased the time of field, which is what I loved. More stories, more, more love in the outdoors, more fresh air, more exercise, more camaraderie, you know, more family time. So, yeah, it's uh, more difficult, the better. I think the converse is why so many people today stay away from a lot of what we call primitive methods, archery, et cetera. And it's not that they don't want it. And it's not that they don't want the time. There's so many people today that, you know, they work a job. Uh, or they run a business like I do, and we just don't get away that often. So when you can get away for a four-day hunt, it's really a three-day hunt, um, and then you're you know you're going to introduce a, a bow into that. It drastically reduces the odds of success, and I don't think people so much are concerned that it reduces the odds of success. It's that that might be the only long weekend that they get away that that at that point. Because when I was a kid and I had so much free time. I could be in that tree every single day of the season. And it made it a lot easier to make that decision because there's, there's something primal about the bow that to me, I haven't experienced with anything else in that you're more aware of yourself in that moment before the shot than you are at any other time in your life. You, you know, you make the mistake of wearing a wristwatch that ticks like I did when I was a young kid and that deer doesn't even hear it. But all of a sudden you hear the ticking of that watch like it's inside your ear. You hear your heartbeat. You can damn near feel the hackles on the deer come up when he knows something's wrong. And it doesn't really exist to me. And now maybe there's something I'm missing, like I speared an outlatl or something because I've never done that. Um, but any other, like I've, I've hunted with air rifles. I've hunted with black powder. I've hunted with rifles. It's all exciting in its own way. But something about, so many things can go wrong between the time that bow comes up and that arrow gets released. And that animal has the advantage in every meaningful way. And there's really nothing else like it, but it's a much more difficult thing for people to make time for in 2023, I guess, than it was maybe in 1975. Sure. I mean, and I mean, let, let's face it, it. It's really nice to have wild game barbecue in the middle of winter. So, so if you get four days, three days, you know, use a rifle. I mean, that there, yeah. there's still what you're introducing on that is a degree of difficulty, a challenge based on time. You know, mm -hmm. I spent 36 days in a stand because, you know, that's kind of my job is to just uh, do what I do. So, so, you know, that's not the same as somebody who's got three days. 
their, their challenge is far greater. Maybe they're hunting, you know, I was on our own private ranch, yeah. you know, not high fence, but, but still, you know, I'm on our own ranch. I, most of my hunting here in BC and in the Yukon is public land, but, but there's people that they hunt public land with, with, you know, other hunters everywhere. I mean, I, I hunted Missouri one year and, and, and I had on private land in Missouri. Yeah. It was it 13 different hunters walked by me while I sat in my tree stand all day long. You know, they come by, how are you doing? It's private land. And, and I know you don't have permission, but there, you know, there's no places to hunt or not as much land as what we need. So, so, you know, the degree of difficulty, should I have been using a rifle? Yeah, darn, darn right, so I should have. I might have got a deer that time. Yeah. So, so, yeah, a degree of difficulty doesn't mean you have to degrade the ability to reach out and touch a deer at 200 yards. You know, it, it, that can be what it means. You know, 200 yards, maybe you have to shoot 300 for your degree of difficulty. So, so it's just, and, and if you have, again, it's a luxury. It's a luxury to be able to spend time out in the wildlands and, and it you know that luxury you know desire you measure desire that'll tell you accomplishment if you want to spend more time you have to have a bigger amount of desire and and you know i, I like i said adjust your life yeah make it your life if that's really what you're i, I think it was willa Cather said that uh if you could measure desire you you'd be able to predict accomplishment or achievement mm -hmm. i think is what she said and that that's you know, I had a big level of desire. So, and, but everybody's got different things they desire. You know, I didn't care about a fancy new truck back in the day. So I never got golden handcuffed to a, to a, a loan. Sure. I never had, never had to work, but if I didn't get a, who cared? You know, I was driving or hitchhiking using my crappy old Ford Ranger. No offense to everybody that drives crappy old Ford Rangers, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, I just made sure that I, I, I just live my life to do what I love doing, which is being outdoors. I get a lot of questions from people, and I don't know, growing up the way I did, I guess I just figured the average guy knew a lot of this stuff. And then you realize, like, you, I grew up in, like, my childhood wasn't perfect, but that piece of it was actually pretty unique and rare for the 1970s and 80s, to grow up as a kid that could go home, grab a 22, and run up the hill. Like, that was not, to me, it was like, I grew up, everybody was like that, so I thought the world was like that. And I started doing the show, and when I would talk about hunting, I would get these questions of, like, how do I get started? And that's such a hard thing to answer because, well, where are you? Like, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, you could literally go down and join a rod and gun club, tie yourself into the community of hunters. And once you were there a while and, you know, you just weren't some uh, recent come along, like, people would help you out. And there was tons of public land. has its own challenges, like you mentioned. Like, one of the reasons I got into archery is because I didn't want to get shot in rifle season. It's two weeks long. It was a sea of orange everywhere. Um, but how, what would you advise the person that like, they really want to get into this, but they have no background at all. Maybe they know basic gun safety or what have you, but they really don't know where to start. Yeah. I mean, a question like that is probably coming from someone who's living in an urban setting, because if you're in a rural setting, it's kind of not a question. Mm -hmm. It just isn't. You, you want to go hunting, you know, go over there or go in the back 40 or, you know, go down to the bar and the guys will be before the season all talking about where they're going. And I mean, it, you know, there's, there's gun clubs, there's 4-H clubs, there's everyone's a farmer, rancher. So, so it's not a question that you'll get from somebody that's in a rural setting unless they move there from California or 
with New York. So, so it's probably an urban question, in which case, you know, it, it's problematical. I mean, there, there's how many, 8 billion of us in this world, and, and you know, just speaking North America-wise, how many people, you know, Vancouver's 4 million people, uh, Toronto's probably 4 million, Montreal, I mean, that's where the majority of Canadians live is in urban yeah. And And yeah, it's fair enough. How, how would you get hunting? Um, move. <laughs> like, yeah. So nowadays, you know, hunting, not, you know, we always want more and more hunters. We want more hunters. We think that's, a, that's the panacea for, for the issues we have for a conservation, wildlife management, um, but also participation numbers, the voice, but, but they're, you know, it's just a sad. There, there is. We all want more hunters until we get out there, and there's other hunters in the way, right? <laughs> and and that—that's the problem. Yeah. You know, that is the problem. And then, you know, that's exacerbated by, you know, rich people with lands. You know, I've got a ranch, Saskatchewan. You know, I grew up in a trailer park. I—I I earned every penny I've ever made. I left home with three hundred dollars in my pocket, and and, you know, so, so to me, well, you just go work hard, and and you get a ranch. Maybe I was lucky, right place, right time. I don't know. And it's not, you know, lots of people say, I can't, it'll never happen for me. And so then they, you know, they're hunters, but they hate me because I've got a ranch, you know. And, and at, what's the solution on that is is to go back in time to the 70s. I mean, I heck, we take our 22 to school and go straight out afterwards looking for rabbits, uh, gophers, whatever. We, were hunting. we didn't even think it was, we put a gun in the rack of the window. It was, it's just how you lived. But so you want that back, okay, go back in time. Well, that means getting rid of how many, 100, 200 million people? Well, that's not going to happen. It's not reality. So how does the urban person become a hunter? Move. 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 Find people that will let you hunt their land to a degree. And, like, I think one of the things I've always advised people is everyone wants to shoot a deer or an elk or a bear or something. Go hunt squirrels. There's tons of places you can hunt squirrels. And there's tons of landowners that might say, like, I'm going to charge you a deer lease to hunt deer. But if you want to hunt small game, sure. and, and I think one of the problems people have that are maybe in this zone is they think of squirrels like the little tree rats that you see at the city park that are used to being fed. You know this. You get up in the mountains, and you're hunting a squirrel with a 22 in the timber before the leaves fall. It is one of the... The reason the success rate is so high is because there's so many of them. It's not because it's easy. I'm sure you've done the hat trick where you throw the hat behind the tree because that sucker's you know, <laughs> stuck up to the tree. Right, yeah. And you see just a little tip of the head, and you're like, is that tail or is that how that's head? And, you, you know, and it gives you so many of the skill sets, scouting, stalking, learning to move quietly, learning when you set up to sit on a stand to do basic things. You know, again, I'm trying to remember that not everybody grew up with this, like, you need to clear all the leaves around around that tree you're going to sit down. So when you move, you don't make noise. Sure. Right. So there's like, to me, that's like one of the soft spots. I guess the other place is, you know, take a guided hunt. I know that can be expensive, but there's some really reasonable, like I hunt a ranch down in South Texas that they have so many, they have such a lopsided doe to buck ratio that they get conservation permits. And I'll go down there and take two doe and a, you know, something like an exotic doe or something. And I'm under a thousand bucks to do that. And to me, then you're getting the experience and all. You're not the problem, I guess, when I'm trying to get people started is they're going to sit in a box blind and wait. And, and there's, there's some real 
good in that because there's that contemplation time, the thinking and, and what else you see that you're not going to take. But it's not the same as learning how to track, learning how to scout. And, and that that's something that gets, I think, missed because even if you're an elk hunt in the Iraqi or something, the guide has got that part down and you're just kind of along for the ride to be very physically challenging. But you see what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. I mean, you know, even as you're talking, I'm thinking back on my answer move. You know, most people will say, I can't move again. It's to me, it's a measure of desire. You can move because you're handcuffed unless you're in a cage, you can move to me. That's how I think, you know, just, I want that. So I'm going to go, go, live in a rural setting, make friends with people that have land and, and be able to go hunting because, you know, that's available. Um, but, but again, I think part of the problem is people want to start, they want to drive a Rolls Royce for their first car. Mm-hmm. They want to go get a big buck. They want to get, I want to do what I see on TV, you know, see Lee and Tiffany doing well, you know, a doe, what's, what are you actually after here? You know, the experience of the outdoors, which you're getting on your doe hunt, Sitting on a stand—that's that's part of hunting patience. Yes, and is. you're going to see once once, you know, I, I say it's like diving into a still pond. You know, the waves go all over, and you're you make a big mess. But if you sit still in that pond, eventually it calms down, and and nature starts to go back to normal. And you're there in it. It takes a couple hours sometimes. Mm-hmm. Just, then you see the squirrels, and you see the rabbits, you see the chipmunks doing whatever they're doing, the birds flying around, insect bugs, whatever. You know, that's all part of hunting. So it, it is part of hunting. It doesn't teach you the, the skills of tracking or, or, you know, seeing, actually seeing in the woods, but, but it's part of it. Patience is a big, big part of hunting, slowing down, putting the cell phone away and paying attention to what's out there. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's a, um, you know, when people want to start at the top nowadays, cause we all kind of expect that in our world, it, it's a, it's a, it uh, makes unrealistic expectations and, and squirrel hunting. I, I grew up, like I said, with my pellet gun trying to get whatever rabbits and gophers and anything. I mean, I brought some of the most horribly, you know, disgusting creatures home for my mom to cook up, you know, but that's, that's how it started. And, and I've eaten them all. I mean, gophers yeah. are good. You know, yeah. no, I've, I've eaten groundhogs. I mean, groundhog hunting was a big thing in PA. It was a good way actually to get permission because everybody shows up two weeks before hunting season, asks the farmer if they can hunt his farm. And he's just like, I don't have time to talk to you right now. But, you know, we would drive around in June and July and spot groundhogs and then go find the farmer that owned that farm and say, hey, uh, we're groundhog hunters. You've got a groundhog out there. Can I shoot it? And generally they would say, oh, God, I wish you would. Yeah. Because this is, you know, again, back 70s and 80s. And most of the farms, even that grew row crops, they had cattle as well. And cattle fall in holes and break their legs. So. That gave you a chance to be out there when nobody else was, and it also gave that farmer a chance to observe the way that you behaved. You didn't leave trash. You were, you know, ethical. You were okay. mindful of the direction you were shooting. He knew he wasn't dealing with a bunch of yahoos that were going to show up drunk at noon on the first day and go pitching through the woods, banging trees and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there's there is something. We used to we ate everything. I grew up trapping too. I mean, I ate raccoons. I like you didn't throw away meat. That just wasn't a thing. You just didn't do that. Um, but anything you might kill because of trapping that you wouldn't eat was impossible. Like anything else, muskrat, we ate muskrat all the time. I've eaten them. 
they're 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 not bad. I mean, no. it's not probably not eating like kings exactly, but no. uh, <laughs> but it, it's not bad. I've, I've eaten them down in uh, New Zealand as well. But yeah, you know, if we're hungry enough, we'll eat anything. And and you you go get whatever the limit of squirrels in it in a day. That's it. you're you're provided for your family probably for a couple three days. Yeah. So it makes great stew. Rabbits, you know, if you're out there too, see a rabbit. I mean, it. So yeah, we we just have to set our sights more realistically. If you you know if moving isn't an option, you know, desire is not that high. You can like you say go out there earlier, which is kind of a way of moving. You know, yeah. Don't yeah. be watching football games. Get out there earlier, and and baseball. You know, on the weekend, go go help the farmer. Give them something in return instead of just asking them to give you. You know, they worked hard for that land. That's been in the family for generations, maybe. And and you know, they're basically doing you a favor by letting you go on your land, on their land. Mm-hmm. So do do them a favor. Like you, it just makes to me it makes common sense, and it's it's just what you do in urban settings. Maybe not. Quite so much in urban or or what you do in rural settings. Maybe not quite yeah. so much in urban settings. Well, and find that or, urban rural fringe a lot. The small game. That's what makes that great. Like we used to, we used to take a thirty-eight special case and glue it to an arrow shaft. The days before they had judo points and stuff like that, we would shoot rabbits with those. Well, you can do that in a lot of places that you can't discharge a firearm. Sure. Right. So, like you know, then sh- shooting a rabbit with a bow. It's a you want challenge like, and you want to learn to become a hunter like that. That animal's entire life is based on not dying. That's its only thing that it really wants to do is not die. So it can make more rabbits. That's it. And so it's everything on the planet that's bigger than it will eat it. And it knows that. And now you're out there with a blunt stick and a bow. And so you know, take those challenges on. I think, I mean, that's, that's the only way I've really been able to do it because I can't, I can't fire off a 300 word email to somebody that tells them exactly what to do. Right. It's not, it's not doable. Yeah. And, and, and you still get the experience every, every time. And I, I've said it over and over and over. And I don't care if I'm, I'm out there hunting a rabbit or I'm hunting a moose or a Cape Buffalo. I'm, I get the exact same feeling. I'm just as excited on that rabbit getting close enough with a bow and arrow. I mean, it's the same feeling. So, you know, like I say, driving is driving. It may be not a Rolls Royce, yeah. but it's Volkswagen, you know, still it's driving. And, yeah. and hunting is the same thing. Get out there and, and just ex- like enjoy all those other aspects about it as opposed to looking at attaining this goal, which is to get this whatever for your wall. You know, that's, that's, not a, that's not the big part of hunting. It's not what hunters are, or hunting's about. For the person that, that does have experience, they do hunt, but they want to go do something different but maybe not hire a guide. Like, is there like a, a bang for your buck hunt in North America that you think it'd be a good, you know, where you can use public land and all like what springs to my mind immediately is antelope in Wyoming. Like anybody can get a tag. Success rates are really high, plenty of land to hunt, but you're out there on your own. Is there anything like that that particularly springs to mind for you? Well, up here in Canada, it, it really bird hunting is about all you can do that way. Okay. Uh, you know, ducks and geese and, and upland game. Um, you, you, you can, but if you're going to go after big game in most of the provinces, you have to be guided or at okay. least you have to be with someone who has a guide's license, whether it's a class B or C or whatever they call it, you know, a permit to a company. I think Alberta has that, but BC, if you're American, no, you, you got to, 
you, you don't have any choice. You've got to go with the guy okay. if you're going to do things legally. Um, so, so, and, and there's a reason for that because there'd be, I mean, the woods would be filled with a million hunters every fall and, and the wildlife, you know, for management, you just can't have that. Yeah. Uh, Alaska, you can do self-guided hunts. You know, I, I mean, you, you're going to have to be, you, you know, a, a, an intrepid an adventurer to do it because you're going to have to hire an airplane to drop you off somewhere and go in your canoe or raft down a river and get picked up again at the end of it, dealing with bears and looking for caribou and moose. I mean, you know, that can be done. It's still going to cost you some money. It's an exercise in desire. Um, you know, who was who it said? Um, Samuel Butler. There is no, there is no, um, or there is no need for desire, but desire will come to me. But but you you know desires need is how you measure desire. If you want to do it, you can do it. You mm -hmm. can go to Wyoming. You can do that self-guided animal hunt. Canada, not so much. You're, you're pretty well going to have to go with with a, an outfitter, which, which I highly recommend anyway because it's you know there um, you you can get yourself in a pickle up here pretty easily. Yeah, you know I mentioned Wyoming. You you got. A lot of straight roads and a lot of visibility. And uh, growing up in the Northeast woods, I, I've seen people spewing sweat, going in a circle without knowing it. When you're sitting in the stand, you're like, dude, the, the, you don't want to yell. Like the road's right there. And if you went ten more, and they're lost. Like and and the, the wilderness you're talking about is a whole other layer of that. So I, I can definitely see the the need for that for the person that has no idea where they're at. I mean, yeah. and the, the problem comes in is the expense because yeah. it, it's not cheap. It, it, you, you do a wilderness hunt like our Yukon, my Rogue River opening territory is, is um, 12,000 square miles. I mean, it, it's massive. I, I don't know how many acres that is over, over 7 million acres. And there's not a single road in that whole area. Not, not one. There's one on one boundary on one side, um, but in the territory, you, you can take an airplane or airplane. You can fly for an hour and a half and not hit the far side of the territory. I'd never Ooh. see a house. A there's no roads. There's no people. There's no nothing. I mean, it, 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 you really, it, it's expensive because we have every single fork, every piece of food that, you know, because believe it or not, we're not allowed to, to provide moose meat for the client unless it's a gift to them. So we have to have, Every meal, cook something we fly in, and then we can give them moose meat as a gift, or sort of this is just as a friendship thing. So everything and every piece of garbage has to be flown out. Sure, clients, the moose, everything's got to be flown in, flown out. It's expensive. You know, hunts are thirty thousand dollars. Well, you know, there's a reason because twenty eight thousand of that is cost, and and there's no other way to do it cheaper. So so. You know, the wilderness stuff, again, it's Rolls-Royce stuff, and it's, it's expensive, and unfortunately, not everybody can, can, um, can afford that. I wish they could, and I wish, yeah. I wish, I wish the wildlife could, could handle that. But in that whole area, you know, we're allowed 45, 45 moose, you know, 7 million acres, 45 moose. It, 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 you know, it can't take a higher offtake or uh, offput of the animals. So, so, you know, that, that's why you, the guiding is kind of an important, I know there's lots of guys, I only do self-guided, I only do self-guided and, you know, kudos to you're great. You know, have at it all you want. Uh, you won't be doing it up in Canada. Sure. Not if you're, not if you're American, you're going to, you're going to be guided no matter what your 
trying to tell the world. Even if your TV show says you're dropped off and you're surviving and you're killing the moose, no, you're not. You're, the guide's there with you, just not showing them. So, so it, it, it's, it's, it's yeah, the scene like, spoilers with Jim Shockey on TSP. Uh, that's interesting to know because I have seen where you look at people hunting in that part of the world and it does appear as though they're completely on their own. That's that's one of those interesting things to know. It also kind of puts things in perspective. So, guys, when you see that you can go do a guided hunt in Wyoming or Montana for a combo mule deer and antelope and you can do that for three thousand to four thousand dollars. Not a bad deal. No. Not a bad deal, and maybe a memory that'll last a lifetime if you do it right, you know. So go out and take those adventures. Um, I do want to circle back here at the the end, Jim, to your book again. Uh, tell people when is it actually going to be released? And again, I have um, I have links to it on Amazon anyway, and there's, it's available anywhere books are sold uh, for pre order right now. And it will be these links will be in the show notes. But when's it due out? And and just tell people why they should read it. It's release date is October 17th. Uh, Simon and Schuster out of New York City, the biggest publisher in the world for, for commercial fiction, are, are publishing it. Um, I signed a, a two book deal with them. So this, I have to write a sequel to this as well. And it's, it's left in a way that you'll want to know what happens beyond the end of this first novel. Um, it, it, you know, Jack Carr, who wrote Terminal List and, and, he had three top 10 New York Times bestseller novels at the same time on that list. I mean, the guy, you know, who was it? Uh, Chris Pratt did, you know, the Amazon series or Prime. I'm not sure. He, he, like fabulous writer. And, and, you know, Jack said to me that it's, and he's a, he's a prolific reader. He's a bibliophile as well. And, and he said, this novel is, is a, um, it doesn't, you can't fit it in a particular genre. It's got to have a name on it, so they call it commercial fiction or, or commercial fictional thriller. But he said it, it sets a different standard, a different bar. It, it's, uh, And I think it's because there's so much truth and verifiable truth in it. It's, uh, a fellow told me years ago, decades ago, actually, that the best writing is honest writing. And this is honest. There's there's very little in there that's not uh, that's not the truth. Um, like I said, the the twenty percent that'll put anybody in jail—that's the part that's fiction. It, you can read into that however you want, but uh, but it, it, it's based in the art world, uh, the underground of the art world. It's, the premise is that you're born with an ability to recognize beauty, and and so walk in an art gallery. If there's one painting that's that's absolutely world-class people that are born with that sense, that ability to sense that. Um, and they sense it in different ways. You know, they'll pick it up. And therefore you can make a living at it. Um, you know, going around to antique stores and finding great works of art because you recognize it, you feel it. So that's the premise with the added touch that there's an organization, an underground organization called our world. That um, and they call it that because it is their world. They don't listen to, um, they don't follow rules or laws of nature. They or laws of man because they make their own rules and laws. And this underground finds these people that have this ability as children, and recognize uh, the ability to recognize fine works of art. And basically, like a cormorant puts a ring around their neck and sends them out to go find these masterpieces around the world. 
wherever they may be, recognize them when they see them. Just people don't recognize it, that don't have that talent. So, it, you know, it, it's and it, in this book, I flipped the stereotypes. So the 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 actual protagonist is a young lady, Nyala, um, after the antelope. Um, but the antihero is a hunter. Wasn't a hunter to begin with, became a hunter. Um, and he's kind of a conflicted anti-hero. The villain is an animal rights extremist. Yeah. So I, I just totally flipped it around because, I mean, we've just had so much of the horrible Bambi killing, you know, yeah. macho, blah, blah, blah. Which, by the way, the guy that wrote Bambi was a hunter. They, yeah. Walt Disney twisted the whole story around to make it like it is. But, you know, the whole the idea of the original Bambi was conservation. But uh, anyway. Uh, so I've I did not the, know that. I'm going to have to dig into that yeah, one. Yeah, is an Austrian author, uh, written in the 20s somewhere in there, and, and yeah, he's he's a hunter. So it was never it was Walt Disney that that Disneyfied it and twisted it and basically started that pendulum swinging the other way. But um, in in Call Me Hunter, the stereotypes are are flipped, and and it is it, it a it's a very interesting thing when you. Because it goes against the grain of, you know, mainstream media for the last five decades, six decades since 1960, probably. So, so suddenly, wait a minute, you know. So it's cognitive dissonance when they. But I like this person, but I hate that person. But that person is the person that I'm supposed to hate. But that person, you know. So, I, so I mixed it all up, and uh, and I honestly believe if it does well, if. Um, if we support it as, as outdoors people, hunters, lovers of, you know, field to table lifestyle, if we support it and, and the dollars, you know, justify it to the, uh, to the powers in, in New York that, that hold the reins and the distribution channels, uh, you know, they control them. If it does well, it's going to open, it'll crack that door open and allow many more of these. I say, wait, people really actually want to hear this instead of this, stuff that we've been, you know, just regurgitated over and over mm -hmm. and over and over again. It, it's tiring and it's mind numbing. It's, it's been done. So now it's flipped and, and it, it's an interest. It's interesting. It's like, Oh, and there, and there, if we can show there's a demand for that, I honestly believe that this could be that catalyst that shifts it back again. You know, Jack Carr, his character is a hunter, uses a bow and arrow. Uh, you know, he maybe is the one that cracked it open in recent times at that level, you know, bestseller, yeah you know, New York Times three at a time, you know, the top 10. And, you know, and it actually was Jack that helped me get my novel published because uh, like Jimmy Buffett, you know, I wasn't having a whole bunch of luck. They, <laughs> they, a quick quick story on that. My agent, Esther uh, Fedorkowicz, she's fabulous. Um, she uh, sent it off because it's almost written in a literary, you know, it's, it could all, it could be literature. It should be literature. It's, it's written that well. I, I'm saying that. I'm not the one to judge that, but that's what they said. So they submitted it to 10 publishers who published literature, right? Like, you know, nosy in the air literature. And not one of them read it. They all sent it back and say, we Googled the guy. He's too much of a celebrity. He can't possibly write literature. You know, it's like <sighs> you have a following on social media, so you're too stupid to be able to write literature. You've got to be a down and out, depressive Mac, depressive professor of failed literature. God to forbid be able to you find an author that can help sell the book. That would be insane. Yeah. Well, that's, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's it's uh, 
so so then we didn't have a choice. It had to go into commercial fiction, and that's thank goodness because and, yeah. and Jack, Jack Carr, to his credit, authors never do this. They never they never suggest another writer to a, a agent or a publisher because if it's crappy, they've wasted that. You know, their time is so limited. Ten hours to read that book. Yeah. They, you know, they basically are cutting their own throats, hanging themselves by doing that. Jack Carr, to his credit, read it. And he told Emily Bessler, who's the rock star of editing in uh, New York City, she's discovered many of the the great uh, modern day authors. Um, she loved it, and and she um, she got a hold of me, and made, I mean, they basically asked, "Did you actually write this?" I said, "Yeah, you know, it's exactly right." Yeah, and it uh, that was my agent Esther. Same thing, you know, she. She said, my readers, because they have readers that read it before it ever gets to the main people. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, she had her, her you know, she, I'd met her before, and she had a paper in front of her. She said, that was her first question. Did, I have to ask, did you actually write this? And she said her 13 readers, who she says are the most jaded people in the world, because they get, she gets a, ma- a thousand unsolicited manuscripts a month. Wow. So they have to read that, those 13, and they're like, uh, not another crappy novel. Yeah. Someone thinks they're Hemingway and they're not. And and they had 13 check marks and signed this guy up, the next great writer. That was on her note. She showed me and said, she said, so, you know, I haven't read it yet, but we're signing you. So this is what it is. So I, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, it's wonderful that Jack Carr supported it. And I do believe this novel, if we all support it, and then it's not for money because it's worth up to about $1.50 an hour for me over the, over the time of writing. I understand. Yeah, but but it's I I think it'll be make a big difference, a positive difference, in the non-hunting world's perspective of hunters and hunting and the field of table lifestyle. I, I truly believe that with all my heart. No God. Well, here's what Jack Carr said about it: astoundingly original, relentlessly paced, and purely authentic. That's a from that guy. That is a pretty high uh, margin to hit. So. I wish you well with it. I've already pre-ordered my copy. I'm going to suggest that people uh, here do the same. I actually ordered the audio version because it fits well with my active lifestyle and I can listen and multitask. Um, thank God for audio because I've built my whole career on it. Um, we, we have about 150x reach in audio that we do over video, and I think it's because people can multitask. So that's available. There's the hard copy. There is the... Uh, the Kindle version, it's all available, guys. Go out there. And I agree. I think this is a great – it's kind of a subversive tactic. Let's take a a novel and use it, and then hunting is a topic within it rather than a book on hunting because the 80% you're talking about will probably never buy the book that's about hunting as a standalone, right? But they'll read a novel. Uh, so I, I wish you really well with it, and I hope my audience goes out and picks up a copy. Uh, man, thank you so much. This has been – you know. I've been doing this 15 years. I've had a lot of different people on. This is like top five in 15 years to have you on. I really appreciate you making the time to be with us today, Joe. Wow. That's, that's high praise. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's been an honor. I look forward to being back on Sunday down the road, trying to make it top six. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's have you back, bro. I mean, anytime you want to, uh, your, your guy at Simon has my contact info. You should have it now as well. You know, when the book actually is released, if something else comes up, something you want to talk about, it's an open door. Perfect. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Jim. 
All right, guys, uh, thank you for tuning in today. Um, really fantastic guest. Uh, that really was one of the best interviews I've ever had and one of the, the people that I was most excited to find out that I actually could get on the air. Uh, so big thanks to Jim and definitely consider picking up his book. Remember, one of the ways you can help support us around here is start your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, Jim and I talked about when you hunt, you eat like a king today. You guys know I'm big into cooking. I think it's a huge part of a self-sufficient lifestyle. Just so happens one of my favorite cookwares are on sale today at Amazon. The Lodge Carbon Steel Season Skillets are on sale, like 20% off for like everything they make. I've gone to carbon steel above uh, a cast iron because it's lighter. It heats up quicker. If you cook it with gas, it's, to me, it's a hell of a lot easier to, to gain control of bringing temps up and down. And it's always a good deal. Uh, Lodge is American-made, great product, and you can get it today, again, for 20% off. There's a write-up. There's a link in the notes. All the good stuff as usual. And remember, if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help us out as long as you start your shopping there. Also consider becoming a member of the MSB. Remember, guys, um, that's how I really pay the bills around here. That's how I've been able to do this show for 15 years. It, there's a ton of discounts that come with it. Several of the discounts alone would cover your membership for multiple years. Uh, check it out. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Tomorrow I'm bringing community member, about fourth or fifth appearance on the show back, Joel Riles from Fortress Canine. We're going to be talking about protection dogs. We're going to be talking about homestead dogs. We're talking about core canine obedience. He's an amazing dude with a great story, so make sure you tune in for that. And with that, I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way